Podcast from political blog The Groucho Tendency. What does freedom taste like? Well, to me, it's the taste of a pint in the beer garden at the pub at the bottom of my road. I want to know who was responsible for the idiotic Downing Street briefing last week that suggested that this weekend could see Britons allowed to return to the beer gardens as soon as next week. If you want to rile the British up, it's surely nothing worse than telling them they can get back to their pubs sooner than they thought. Hello and welcome to GNT, the politics podcast from the Groucho Tendency. My name is Mike Indian and this week we're imagining just daring to dream that we've broken out of lockdown. Uh, We're not actually in the pub, we're still in our respective homes, but I'm very pleased to say I'm joined by two guests to discuss the unfolding drama of uh, the lockdown announcement for the last 24 hours. I'm joined by the Labour councillor and activist Paul Lynch and by the former Brexit Party MEP Ben Habib. Hello guys. Hi Mike. Mike. So can I start off by asking you first, Paul, what your thoughts were on Boris Johnson's announcement last night? Someone once referred to a camel as a horse that was designed by committee. And I think what we saw from the Prime Minister last night was a a camel of a speech. It seemed to be designed to unify or at least mollify the various wings of his party and indeed his movement and ended up confusing the living hell out of anyone else who was watching it. Um, (laughs) We had no clear path. We had no clear instructions. We had effectively a announcement that allowed anyone who listened it to make up the listen to it to make up their own mind about what it actually said. And what that has done is put enormous pressure on public services who've been protecting us throughout the Corona crisis, whether that's the NHS or whether that's the police or whether that's care home workers or whether that's council staff or whoever with no clear guidance i've seen it today whilst i took my dogs out for their one walk of the day you saw a lot more people out and about you saw a lot more people traveling not just to work but just around and about and what that could be what that could lead to is a resurgence of the virus and no clear leadership from the prime minister Ben, how about your thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I share a lot of the views that Paul's just expressed. It's, um, I think it's partly the making of the messaging that government's been putting out over the last six weeks. You know, in order to get people to comply with the lockdown, they've really put the fear of God into everyone. And now that they want to reverse from that slightly, it's terribly hard to do it without giving the impression of risking lives. And... So this kind of message of stay alert, which I think is the prime minister seeking to use military metaphors whenever he can, because, you know, not quite sure how you stay alert while you sit at home (laughs) doing absolutely nothing. Um, (laughs) You know, stay alert to save lives. It is it is mixed messaging. You know, either we're going to unlock the economy and people are going to go back to work and we're going to have regulations in place that enforce social distancing and employers are going to be required to adhere to those or face sanction, or we're going to stay in lockdown. And it was kind of, it was really mixed. And 
you know, he was saying, he was really saying construction workers go back to work. Well, construction's been going on during the lockdown anyway. Manufacturers go back to work. Well, some manufacturers were working anyway. And he was saying at the same time, don't use public transport if you can avoid it, you know, oh. cycle or, or, or walk. But actually, nine-tenths of the working population get to work by public transport. There are no options. And so, you know, it was very hard to fathom where he was going. And this idea, the sort of big giveaway was that you could go, to, you could exercise, you know, multiple times in a day. Well, I, I think the average Brit is pushed to exercise twice a week. So, you know, and I think that's, you know, I don't think that's, that's not the foremost of people's minds, you know. So I didn't really, I was underwhelmed by his announcement and I thought it confusing in those respects. I've got to say, Ben, I, I think I heard from your side the tantalising tinkle of ice cubes in a glass. Uh, what are you drinking at the moment in our in our fictional pub? I am, I am. I'm, I'm staying true to the um, true to this program. I've got a gin and tonic, slightly flat tonic, <laughs> but I've got a gin and tonic. <laughs> I'm glad someone gets the G and T bit of this because I explained that to people sometimes. How about you, Paul? What are you drinking? Uh, Hobgoblin IPA, which is the nicest thing in the shop local to, in the shop that's most local to me. Very nice. I'm on a I'm on a nanny state for Brewdog, but not not for not a political preference, but just simply because I stopped drinking last year and haven't seen haven't seen fit to reverse it in lockdown yet. So I think Ben Ben, you both alluded to there that there were certain problems with the messaging that the Prime Minister came out with. Because I don't know about you guys, I saw a lot of very heavy briefing, particularly at the the back end of last week that said today was going to be Magic Monday. It was going to be a big burst for freedom. Paul, when when you alluded to what you were saying about the lockdown, you seemed to suggest it was very open-ended. Is this a big messaging fail for number 10? 100%. 100%. Yeah, I I can't say it clearer than that, which, you know, precludes me from being a government spokesperson. What we got last week was, as you said, um, messaging that we have a nice sunny bank holiday weekend coming up and whilst we are fighting off a plague that has torn it torn right across the world as it's a sunny weekend we'll we'll give you the weekend off from this lockdown business now and <laughs> i just thought oh. that was appalling i thought that was dangerous you know, you, the the prime minister likes to fashion himself as a as a modern day Churchill. And on the day of victory in Europe, you know, seventy five years since victory in Europe, we had a government that was effectively saying, "Let's slack off." Whilst we've got it on the run, <laughs> whilst we've got it, you know, whilst victory is in sight, whilst we're whilst we're preparing for one last push. Yeah, let's take the weekend off. Go and see family. Go and see friends. Yeah, you can probably go to the park. You can probably go. Uh, you can you can make up your own fake beer garden between you and your neighbours. Have have a good time. And I just thought that was irresponsible, especially when you see how hard it's been for the police to distract people and you know get people out of the parks and from crowding round. When you see the the chaos that is most ICU wards or most A&E departments from people being brought in sick from this virus. And then the government just goes, well, they have worked hard, but let's give them a bit, let's give them a bit more hard work in two weeks when the thing spikes again. So I think from what Paul was saying there, Ben, he thinks that the lockdown may have been lifted a bit too soon. Is that fair to say, Paul? I'd say so, yeah. 
Um, ben, do you agree with that? Do you think do you think the government's starting to set up how how it's going to relax things too quickly? Well, I I I've been slightly confused by the whole government approach because they've pivoted at least at least once, probably twice. Initially, Boris was going to go for herd immunity, and the idea was that you had to let the virus spread through the community. The death rate from the virus was extremely low. It was only the vulnerable and the uh, the you know vulnerable people with pre-existing conditions and the elderly who were really in the crosshairs of the virus and actually life could go on as normal. That was his original approach. And then he had the Imperial College report, which put the wind up him. And he's now put the wind right up the nation. And I think one of the problems with the messaging from the government is that in order to enforce lockdown, it has scared the population witless. And even though the statistics do bear out the initial suspicions that it is the elderly, you know, 87% of deaths of people over 65 years of age, even though those those suspicions have been borne out, there was nothing specific yesterday in his messaging to convey that to the populace, to make it clear that actually it's the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions that need to be protected so that the rest of us can get back to work. In fact, and I think one of the reasons he's he's reticent to get that message across is because of the fiasco in the care homes. You know, it's almost an admission of failure if he were to be frank with the populace and, uh, and explain what's happened, because we all sort of knew this in, in early March, and yet elderly folks were discharged from hospitals without having tests, sent back into the care homes, spreading it amongst the most vulnerable in society. So I think he's sort of caught, he's caught himself between a rock and a hard place unable to reverse out of this political cul-de-sac in which he's now found himself. And so he wants to say the he wants to say that we're unlocking, but actually what he's done is unlock in a completely immaterial sense so that people now on the streets cannot be challenged by the police because they can simply say, well, this is my fifth run of the day and I'm entitled to do that. You know, and yet the economy is not moving forward. So I think we've got the kind of worst of all worlds at the moment. I think it's probably worth going over just quickly for the listeners what exactly has changed. So from Wednesday, you'll be lucky enough to be able to meet one person from outside your household as long as you stay two metres away from them. The risk of infection is apparently lower for those outside. Within a month or so, we're expecting that primary schools may be able to reopen. For the green-fingered, excellent news, garden centres will be back. People will also be able to drive to outdoor spaces, but we can't play team sports this is the bit I think that you alluded to here, Ben, the message, messaging that's been lost, because I'm in the category of people who have a pre-existing health condition, and I've received very clear messaging from the NHS about what I'm expected to do, but not from the top of government. And it seems odd, given that they're still saying that healthy people over 70 should take, a, you know, including my parents, for example, should take a risk, should not take the risk of, of contact with people. Paul, is this something that you think the government could have been clearer on with the age-specific guidelines? I mean, it's a difficult one. I think Ben's wholly correct by saying that the Prime Minister can't now make a a strategy based around we must defend the elderly and the vulnerable because it is a tacit admission that his policy failures early on contributed to the chaos that we saw throughout care homes. I mean, the messaging is, is even more twisted than that because what we saw as well is that primary schools will be reopening in general terms, reception, year one, 
year six because we all know how important SATs um, exams are to, to people's development. And I am loading <laughs> that with heavy, heavy sarcasm. Um, but we see the, the one thing that we haven't discussed yet is the, is the widespread belief amongst the scientific community, uh, borne out by evidence, that children are the carriers of uh, COVID. They, they won't be affected by it in the large scale, but they will carry it. And so Ben said before, we, we're going to get the worst of all worlds. And what we saw was, well, okay, let's, let's add to that. Let's have more and more children mixing. Let's have more and more spread of the disease. And yet again, no economic return because the vast amount of people in the service sector, myself and my wife included, have been working from home since before lockdown. So our our sectors of the economy are humming along. Manufacturing and construction, again, as Ben said, have been largely running through since lockdown. So we're not going to see an economic resurgence by these half measures. And what we could what we could see is a resurgence of the virus. You know, we go above the R number of of how many people each person is going to infect. I don't know if you guys saw um, Professor David Spiegelhalter was on Andrew Marr yesterday, and he was stressing that the the the, the effect of the age curve, the older you get, basically every every seven eight years, he said the risk of death from COVID nineteen, the mortality risk doubles. So you know the risk is ten thousand times what it is for the over nineties compared to the under twenty five. So essentially, what you say there, Paul, about the children being the carriers, and yet the government wants the youngest children to go back to school first under their phase plan too. Is that something they haven't really done their homework on? I mean, I don't think they've done much of their homework on on any of this, to be quite frank. And it, it just does I mean, I, I understand to an extent why they've done it. They've done it because the one thing that's going to get people who can't work from home back to work swiftest is very young children being able to have somewhere to go during the day that's not their grandparents. So that's almost certainly why they've done it. However, equally, those people will, those those kids will add to the spread of the disease and then possibly go home and see those grandparents or see their parents. Then we're going to see another round of infections from that, in my view. Ben, you mentioned um, um, care homes previously. I mean, is this something that's going to come out, do you think, later on as an area where the government could have done more sooner? Because obviously, we've seen that the care home mortality rates have, st- have been added into the, to the, the grim daily death figures. Is there, is, is there more the government could have done in social care, particularly in care home settings at this point in time? I think absolutely. I, I think right at the outset, we all knew there was there were many things not known about the virus, but we all knew it affected elderly badly. We we knew that right from the start. In fact, I wrote articles on it back in middle of March about it. So, I, I mean, I know I knew because I've written articles on it. He needed to put in rigorous protection of the elderly. I mean, there's a lot he needed to do, which he's now doing. And thereby, you know, as Paul was indicating, you know, there's an admission of culpability in a sense, because, you know, initially we were told testing and tracing and tracking is not really sensible for the United Kingdom, but they're actually now doing it. We were told that people coming into airports needn't be tested, and now they're in fact going to quarantine people for 14 days. So in some respects, he's tightening down on the lockdown. And in completely non-material, non-beneficial senses, he's loosening it. 
And, you know, as Paul said, economically, we're getting no real benefit because there's no aspect of the economy that's opening up. What he needs to do is be honest with the populace. I don't like this expression, but, you know, it has been used and I think it is accurate to use it. He's got to treat the populace like adults. Tell us what the real problems are. Explain it utterly clearly that the elderly are vulnerable. You know, you you mentioned Andrew Marr. Very few people other than those very politically active and politically interested will watch Andrew Marr. These 5 p.m. briefings that they've been giving us every day should repeatedly emphasize the risk that the that the elderly have and those with pre-existing conditions so that they can take unilateral action to protect themselves. And, you know, he hasn't done that. He's just had a kind of general message of fear, which he's now very, which is now very difficult for him to reverse out of without appearing that he's putting lives at risk. I think the extraordinary thing is that they managed to get the setting right for the message initially. They're the, the prime time television address at overnight figures suggest it pulled in nearly 30 million people, which is over, almost half the population watching it. But the thing that struck me as odd is that, you know, we have only we've had throughout the day this drip drip of clarification. I mean, Dominic Raab was doing the media round this morning and he was having to clarify whether you could see one parent or two, which led to a slightly <laughs> ludicrous suggestion of which parent you have to prioritise. So so let's so we can assume that the messaging on this has been a shambles, but let's look at the actual measures they're talking about. So I think one of the things that for me is that the biggest, going to be the biggest visible change in all this is going to be the fact that we're now being advised to wear face masks in confined settings. So let's say, for example, corner shops supermarkets this sort of thing you talked about a climate of fear there ben i haven't i'm not i'm not an epidemiologist i'm not a doctor my understanding from a very limited uh, grasp and having spoken to people who know more than me is that face masks do little to reduce the transmission of covid19 particularly if they're made of cotton or fabric they're not we're not talking about medical grade ppe here i wonder if if seeing people with face masks out and about and is, is only going to increase that atmosphere of fear that you were talking about there well, I, I mean, I think, I, I, like you, I'm not sure whether face marks are beneficial or not, uh, uh, unless they're military, uh, unless they're medical grade. Sorry, I've got military metaphors on the mind. Unless they're, unless they're <laughs> medical grade. Um, but I, actually, I think saying to people, wear gloves, you know, they went on about washing hands. No one ever said wear gloves. Why not wear gloves? Wear gloves, wear goggles if necessary, because that prevents you from scratching your eyes. And wear a mask, and ideally make it make masks generally available that actually do the job, and that would give people confidence to go back out. You know, one of, I'm going to digress slightly, but one of the things that I find extraordinary about yesterday's announcement by the prime minister, the sectors that he talked about, were all sectors in which the working class are deployed. So the messaging from the prime minister yesterday was: those of you in the working class, go back to work risk your lives, try and get the economy going. And those of you who are middle class and upper class, sit at home and work remotely, staying safe. And, you know, that, that, that with, in the absence of masks and goggles and gloves and protective measures and regulations, is just an untenable political message. And I'm completely behind the TUC and, and you know, the other unions who spoke up yesterday saying, well, you know, we're not going to we're not going to support workers going back to work unless they're protected. Ben appears to have uh, taken over my uh, my, my <laughs> message sheet there. Uh, <laughs> well, here's the thing: it's 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 
it's interesting you, said, you mentioned that, Ben, because there was an analysis that came out today that said that manual male manual workers were three times more likely to get COVID-19 than professionals. In fact, professionals were in the lowest group. Now, Paul, as 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 somebody who's you know is is on here as the voice of the working class, as the as the Labour Party represents as representative here, is this is this is this becoming a class issue now? Is is the pandemic response to lockdown becoming being divided more along class lines? We've heard a lot in lockdown about the haves and have-nots, who hasn't got a garden, where you live matters. So you know, my family in Warwickshire have got a large garden they can go to, but you know, here in central London, we're in a small flat. But obviously, it becomes more acute if you have a large family. In a, in a city area is the the pandemic and the lockdown accentuating class differences i think it's inarguable to say that it is ben stole my my perfect example which was that we are sorry it's all right it's all right um whilst whilst we've looked whilst we've seen the announcement that uh, builders and manufacturers can go back to work whilst we've seen during lockdown um supermarket workers um should stay at work um what we also saw was, uh, you know, legal professionals like myself um, and similar can work from home. We don't need to go out and put ourselves at risk. Uh, today, golf courses were announced that they were going to be reopened, um, wow. which is obviously a, a key and, and crucial industry um, for all um, at, at this time. Um, I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerously could becoming a, a class issue. Um, and you know, I'm very lucky. I I live in a suburb, um, just out, just outside Liverpool. And have, you, have you got a garden? I do. I do oh, that's, that's, that's a blow against class solidarity, isn't it? I mean, you know, having having a garden at a time like this. <laughs> well, you know, I decided I decided to move home after uni. I didn't I didn't go to London. Um, very so, touche. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so so there therein lies the difference. Um, Yes, we we are seeing a a very definite class divide coming out of coming out of this. And again, the the other point I'd like to make is public sector workers, so nurses, police officers, in in the in the in the uh, the clearest form of this, generally those those jobs are filled by people from working class backgrounds, and they have been you know at the very forefront. They've been our vanguard against the disease in one way or the other. And they're the ones who aren't getting any further support. Well, they're getting a clap on Thursday nights, but beyond that, no, no further help. I bet they prefer pay rise to a clap. Well, you see, quite. This, this, you see, this is something I wonder if the two of you would, would would agree on here. So, obviously, we've seen this massive spike in the government is is undertaken massive amounts of spending. You know, certainly you could imagine any Tory government doing this before, you know, and certainly not many shades of a Labour government doing the kinds of interventions the government has done. When this is all over, I mean, it's, it's still going to be the Tories that have to respond to it. I, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago about big government and really wondering if the Tories are going to stick to this. I mean, obviously, we all agree key workers, especially NHS frontline workers, even people, you know, working in grocery stores, that sort of thing, they all deserve, you know, they, they have to be the most underpaid members of our society. But can we afford in the public sector at the moment, given the state of you know, the economy that's likely to be, the deficit's likely to be above ten percent? You know, GDP debt as a share of GDP is going to going to go up again. It's already about eighty percent of it. Can we afford this pay rise at this time? It's a very very pertinent question, and it comes back to this. You know, debt levels in absolute terms are meaningless 
for a government because the Bank of England, frankly, can print as much money as it needs to to fund the government. The problem with rising debt levels is a loss of confidence in your country's currency. That won't happen at the moment as we increase our indebtedness because every major economy in the world is printing money to address the same problem. And so we have a unique opportunity to actually print more money now while everyone else is doing it and under the radar equate the na- you know try and balance up the nation and what i fear is that a great deal of money will be printed for the wrong things that it won't be used extensively enough to level up the nation which is using another one of the prime minister's expressions and that we will then exit this pandemic we'll exit the crisis mode and our currency versus other currencies will then start being analyzed more closely and we would have lost the opportunity for that leveling up and i think the big risk here is i'm looking at the medium long term now the big economic risk here is that the prime minister's promise to level up the country will have been blown See, it's very interesting you say that, Bank. As I, I had a chance to pick over the, the the rest of the recovery document the government's published today, and there's a section in it where it talks about tying in the levelling up agenda to that. And I found myself feeling almost a bit like George Osborne here, reading it and going, "Well, how is he going to pay for it?" I mean, I mean, Paul, this this is all the sort of territory that, if we go back four or five months, now, that was more comfortably occupied by the then Labour leadership. If you're Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson decides to park his tanks, metaphorically, on your lawn of big government and increased spending, how do you respond to that? I mean, the Conservatives' greatest strength throughout the several centuries of, of, of life has always been the very relaxed attitude to ideology. You know, they've been free traders, protectionists, internationalists, isolationists, big government, small government whichever, which is why they're so electorally dangerous and why they are, sad to say, the most successful political project in modern history. Now, I think Boris Johnson has even a, even puts the Conservative Party to shame in how little he actually cares for ideology. He's more than willing to do or say anything, and that's me being a cynic, but certainly do anything to maintain power. I personally don't know right now how, if I was Keir Starmer, how I'd be responding to a Conservative government using big spending to to completely change the economic narrative. However, one thing that the Cameron government, that Cameron opposition did, and this is more of a foreign affairs trick that, that is easy to pull, but during the war in Afghanistan in the late, early 2000s, David Cameron never criticised the war effort. What he criticised was how the war was conducted. And that obviously allowed him to sit on the, you know, ride two horses with one behind, as the phrase goes. If I was Keir Starmer, my response would be, and I think it's being borne out that this is his response, that this is how you do it. You talk about, yes, the government has done a good thing at the right time, but they're not doing it well. You know highlight those times, as Ben said, where actually the money isn't being used to do long-term change to the economic fabric of Britain. Point out those times when nothing will fundamentally change afterwards. Point out those times that people are getting, people feel poorer, people are getting poorer. The government can do something 
to intervene and change that around. As Keir Starmer point out that the government isn't doing that, but instead is maintaining the status quo. And their greatest ambition is to simply return to how things were, what, December last year? You know, the economy and the, the society that we had then, and instead inspire people with what could we do? What could we do with the resources that the government have marshaled? Uh, because that's what the greatest Labour government, and I'm talking about 45 to 51. Of course. That, that's what they did. That's what they did. They said, look, the Conservatives, with our help, has have done have, have fought a war and conquered true evil. And now we're going to use the same economic resources to fundamentally change the face of Britain. That's what Keir Starmer can do. Ben, invoking the same spirit of change that Paul's been channeling there, what, yeah. changes, what changes would you like to see to society? What would you, would you like to see the government do longer term as a result of this pandemic? Because there's been a really big theme in the, in the media that we're talking about how we're going to change our lives. We're, we're all going to work from home. We're all going to be greener. We're all going to travel less. We're all going to be more conscientious. What would you like to see yeah. change as a result of this? What do you think the government could do in, in, in this sort of short, medium to long term? Yeah, I mean, I don't think a lot will change, by the way, once this pandemic, you know, recedes into our, our, our it recedes in our oh, memory really? and it'll recede. Yeah, I think it'll recede quite quickly once it, once we get, once we get on, either we get on top of it through herd immunity or we get on top of it via a vaccine. You know, it will recede and people will go back to work and offices won't be devoid of, you know, people working there as people might now think. But I, I there's a great opportunity now and I don't want to go into a deep economic discussion, but there's a great opportunity now actually to print money. While the US is doing mm. it, while Japan is doing it, while the EU is doing it, so that relatively the UK doesn't look out of step. And there's a great opportunity to use that money to level up the country. I'm not a wholehearted believer in spending money as the only mechanism by which leveling up should take place. Mm -hmm. But undoubtedly, many parts of the United Kingdom have been ignored over decades, and they need investment. So you need broadband, you need connectivity, you need centers of excellence, not just universities, but you need excellent universities. And you've got to make it worthwhile to, to be a nurse. You know, I've got a friend who's a nurse in Vancouver, and we we're talking about the COVID crisis in the UK, and I told her what the average salary of nurses are over here. And she was absolutely horrified by how little we pay our nurses. You've got to, you've got to inculcate a desire to, to be part of the medical industry. You can't do it by paying pittance and putting them in the line of fire every time. So I think there's a real opportunity, but the government's now caught in a very narrow field of vision, which is to defeat this virus. And I think they, that their vision is not broad enough. It's going to be obscured. And defeat is the wrong word too, because you can't defeat this virus no. That's another. Sorry, I'm slightly digressing, Mike. But that's all right. <laughs> you know, that's an, that's a, that's another part of the messaging that's gone wrong. You can't defeat the virus. We have to learn to coexist with the virus, to control it, to coexist with it, and to get back to work. You know, one one last thing I'd like to say is that all economic setbacks hit the working class much harder than they hit the they hit the working class and the middle classes much harder than they hit the upper classes. All forms of taxation are regressive bar very few uh, that you can name. All forms of setbacks are, are regressive. 
And, and I think unless the government thinks broadly and quickly and engenders a plan that can protect the economically most vulnerable and do it now while this opportunity exists, that opportunity will be gone. And I think we'll find a much greater wealth divide between the rich and the poor as we come out of this. I think you're, I'm inclined to agree with you there, Ben, because I mean we're heading into the deepest recession that certainly any of us have, have ever seen. And it's going to make the financial crisis look like a like a, a walk, walk in the, the park. park. I mean, yeah. Paul and I, Paul and I graduated at the at the, at, at the turn of the of, of the last decade when this. So we've lived. If, if you're a millennial, you've lived through two once in a generation recessions already. I just want to go back to what you said there about the government's very narrow focus. It strikes me that. They did have a narrow focus on another issue when they came into office, and that was delivering Brexit. And it worked really well to their advantage. The concern I had about the government over a five-year period is the Tory manifesto was very thin. It didn't have; it wasn't really a prospectus for a five-year, let alone ten years in office, which the kind of mandate Boris Johnson got suggested he could potentially be in office for that long. Just focusing quickly on to July, obviously, we're starting the third round of Brexit trade talks this week. They've been going on remotely. They are, if you read most reports from the Financial Times to the Telegraph, there's reports of deadlock on both sides. Ben, surely you think that we we have to go for an extension given to the transition period, given the fact that the pandemic has been as bad as it has been? Well, actually, I mean, I think think the pandemic, as far as negotiations with the European Union are concerned, helps the United Kingdom because global trade and trade with the EU is at an all-time low. The EU, whatever they might say, recognise the importance of the United Kingdom's markets and they will not want to exit this pandemic with, as they will, by the way, with Italy, Spain, Greece and France effectively bust. And printing money for them doesn't work the same way as it does for us because the ECB is not a truly, is not truly a central bank. And I, th- I, I think actually the moment for the best deal for the United Kingdom is now, while the European Union trade is low, while they're very worried about their, their, their national economies, and while there's an imperative to get something done with the United Kingdom, which is the second biggest selling market for the European Union. Um, Paul, can I ask quickly for your thoughts from the Labour perspective, because Keir Starmer is still also refusing to endorse, explicitly endorse an extension to the transition period. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that is in, is in reality a political decision. I mean, there is no further argument to have over Brexit, and I think, rightly or wrongly, Labour was hobbled in the most recent general election, and indeed the one before that, on its position regarding uh, Brexit and on its position regarding the EU. And so, I I feel that. Here may be slightly gun shy in relation to any kind of pronouncements on an extension because, quite frankly, there is no mandate for it. There is no popular uprising. You know, I, I said just after the election, the people have spoken, the people have voted. There's no further discussion over 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 an extension to Brexit or, or anything like that. I think you're right there. I mean, it's it's interesting because obviously you're up there in those those the northern seats that the Tories swept across the board from, and we've moved away. The second referendum now seems, you know, to be yesterday's argument. I think we're we're in danger of replaying the same argument over a transition period extension. It is possible for us to get a trade deal by the end of the year. I mean, one of one of the things actually I think that's going to work to the government's advantage is that the the the, the depth of the recession will be in from COVID nineteen 
will mask any temporary economic upset we might get from leaving the EU. I think we're running very nearly out of time. I just wanted to ask you both quickly before we finished up, what you're most looking forward to doing once lockdown is over. Ben, could I ask you first? (laughs) Going to a a real pub. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) How about you, Paul? It, it, it sounds corny, but genuinely seeing my family. I hadn't seen them for a few weeks before lockdown. It's my mum's birthday today, actually. You know, I hadn't I hadn't seen them in quite a while. So something something along those lines, realistically. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think she think as much as I was joking about the pint, I think I'm I'm missing good old fashioned um, human contact. But I think ben, ben's I, right. having, I, having... I hope my 86 year old mother doesn't hear this interview <laughs> because you've just put me. You both put me to shame. <laughs> No, but I, th- I think I think to, I think I think if push if push came to shove, Ben, a quick quick gratification or being told we could have to wait two weeks longer and see our family. I think most of us would go out for a pint right now, but I'm, I'm sure we'll be all down the pub before too much longer. Guys, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a very very enjoyable conversation. Can I ask you both where we can find you online quickly if people want to look you up? Uh, yeah, my Twitter is at Paul M J Lynch. I believe my Insta is the same. And my Twitter is at BenHabib6. That's great. Thank you very much, guys. G&T will be back in a couple of weeks' time when Liam Kay and I will be chewing over the latest developments and probably deciding how we can put together some sort of Zoom table football team. You can check me out. I'm at Mike underscore Indian on Twitter. The Groucho tendency is www.thegroucho.uk. Please do check out my article of the pre-lockdown announcements to get a sense of how wrong the government's messaging went on this. If you like the podcast, please do leave us a review. It does push us up the charts on iTunes. Until then, stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.